Welcome to today's episode of the PQI podcast. Today, we welcome Dr. Arturo Loeza Bonilla and Tamanosa Abbey from Cancer Treatment Centers of America in Atlanta, Georgia. Dr. Bonilla is the National GI Program Director and Medical Director of Clinical Research for CTCA. Tammy is the Inpatient Pharmacy Supervisor at CTCA in Atlanta. March is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month, and today we discuss colorectal cancer treatment and screening updates, as well as the value of CTCA's multidisciplinary team. This episode is brought to you by Cardinal Health Vital Source GPO. Our site of care dispensing solutions provide the end-to-end expert support you need to launch and maintain a successful dispensing program. From initial evaluation to design and implementation to ongoing operations and patient monitoring. Vital Source GPO provides tools, resources, and expertise to help you deliver exceptional patient care, gain additional revenue, and protect reimbursements. To connect with a Cardinal Health team member to learn more, go to cardinalhealth.com dispensing. Again, that's cardinalhealth.com dispensing. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Bonilla and Tammy, for joining us today on the PQI podcast. But to start out, will you both please introduce yourselves and tell our audience a little about your background and your current role? Um, So my name is Tamanosa Abbey. I am the inpatient pharmacy supervisor at Cancer Treatment Centers of America in Atlanta, Georgia. And I have been um, been a pharmacist for about 10 years and in, in the oncology space for eight years. And so I've seen a lot um, just within the space of oncology, starting off as a night shift pharmacist and then helping to pioneer um, our pharmacist integration in the outpatient clinics. And so being a part of uh, establishing what it looks like with our care team. So our medical oncology teams are broken up by disease state. And so um, as pharmacists in the clinic, we kind of do a little bit of everything um, from solid tumor even to um, our blood malignancies. And so we serve as uh, a reference for not only our providers, but for our nurses as well. Um, Anything from drug information questions to supportive care, how can we optimize therapy, dose adjustments for um, not only our patients on oral therapies, but also uh, our patients being seen in the infusion center. Okay, great. And Dr. Bonilla? Uh, yes, thank you so much for having us in our pod- your podcast today. I'm Arturo Loise Bonilla. I'm a practicing medical oncologist, currently the Enterprise Director of Research in uh, GI uh, Oncologist at Cancer Treatment Centers of America in Atlanta. Um, I've been in the organization for about five years now, uh, working on developing, you know, strategies for optimizing our clinical trial portfolio, giving options to our patients through biomarker testing, um, and that which is a passion of mine, also including technology on that. Um, so I, uh, you know, you're from Columbia, trained uh, there, then ended up uh, in Baltimore uh, doing my internal medicine training. Very focused in oncology uh, because I have a family situation. My brother had leukemia at the time, so I became extremely focused on how to help you know people beyond like my brother and how uh, you know sometimes it's uh, it's really hard to understand options. So uh, that was something that I really became passionate about and um, finding gaps in clinical trials and things that we can improve. 
then I moved to University of Miami for my fellowship. And then uh, I was recruited as faculty at the University of Pennsylvania, the uh, Cancer Center. I moved to Philly and I still live in Philly, um, but I move around the country I'm working at, uh, you know, CTCA. And uh, yes, a pleasure to be here today and I'm looking forward to have an exchange of, uh, you know, interesting conversation. Okay, wow. I love it. I love it when you have a personal story that leads you into um, to oncology. I think it's definitely gives some passion behind what you do. Um, so will you all tell us about your practice and your setup and maybe Dr. Bonilla can kind of talk about the clinic setup um, in general and then Tammy if you would kind of touch on the pharmacy and how that's set up. I know you did um, a little in your introduction but just in a little more detail. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, um, as, as you know, or may have heard, you know, uh, Cancer Treatment Centers of America, it's a network of hospitals. Now we're part of City of Hope, which is, a, uh, as you know, a, a large NCI designated cancer center. And uh, we basically became a bigger family now. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, we work in a multidisciplinary setting uh, where there's dedicated uh, treatment units. So we have, you know, GI, we have thoracic, we have breast, gyne, uh, GU, etc. cetera. Uh, and the idea here is that we want to give the patient the mother standard of care, which is basically how we will treat our families if we were in the same situation. And I mean, it's something that, you know, it's pretty unique to CTCA, but uh, we want to establish it everywhere as much as we can. Uh, I think it's good practice. Um, so, um, we also have a strong relationship with our pharmacy team. So as, as Tammy mentioned, we, we have a specialty pharmacy and we also have uh, you know, a retail pharmacy in each one of our facilities. And the idea is that anything that we do, we communicate with them directly so we can you know, optimize the access to our patients to the right drugs at the right time and, and make sure that anything that is needed in terms of assistance programs, uh, you know, anything including copays and all that is all taken care of uh, in a in a multidisciplinary fashion. On my team, I have my, you know, my case manager, which is an oncology nurse that talks to my patients on the phone. Uh, I have, you know, my scheduler, my uh, dedicated liaison for patient advocacy side. And, uh, and then we work basically mm -hmm. in a dedicated unit so I can talk to my, you know, my colleagues in the GI, IR, uh, radiation oncology, surgery, uh, and we all have meetings, you know, monthly. So we work as an academic center, basically, but within the community setup. Um, so uh, very interesting um, place to be at and a privilege to work with them. Yes, awesome. And then Tammy, do you have anything to add on the pharmacy end? Yes, like Dr. Bonilla said, we are very unique in that not only do we have um, the inpatient pharmacy on site that services um, our admitted patients. So we do have an ICU, um, a step-down unit, a med surge floor, um, but we also have a very busy infusion center where our patients are able, with our model, our patients are able to be seen in the clinic and then transition to the infusion center in the same day. And then we have our specialty pharmacy and our standard community-based or retail pharmacy on site. And so we have that ability to seamlessly collaborate on behalf of our patients. Um, in our specialty pharmacy, that setup is very unique because they are able to manage all of the uh, prior authorization yes. for our patients. They have access to the EHR. And so 
um, while they may have to interface with the care team and the medical oncologist from time to time, it's a much seamless, a more seamless process, um, and we're able to get things turned around for our patients very quickly. In addition to the um, services that having a retail pharmacy on site provides, um, because we have a lot of patients that travel um, from all over the U.S. to receive treatment at our site, they're able to be seen by their provider, um, get any supportive care prescriptions filled, and, and travel home with that. And and in certain instances, we're also able to mail their prescriptions um, to their homes as well. Um, and then from just the setup in the clinic standpoint, while we're growing in, um, and our plan is to have a pharmacist dedicated for to each care, um, to each center of oncology that is uh, broken up by disease state, we currently have about um, two pharmacists that are in the clinic full-time, they're centrally located and are not only a resource to the medical oncologist, but also to the care managers. Um, so real-time providing um, recommendations on how to optimize their supportive care regimens, um, what other adverse effects may the patient be experiencing from their regimen, in addition to um, working alongside the medical oncologist with dose reductions, alternative therapies, uh, and things of that nature. So we're really a close-knit family. We sit close together, so we're able to um, collaborate very easily. It's wonderful. I think it's so important. Um, for the patients. And I know you just mentioned that you were able to seamlessly collaborate. So what other benefits do you think that patients receive from this team-based approach that you all have? Yeah, of course. I think the one of the most obvious, I guess, from my standpoint would just be having various or multiple vantage points with regards to how to approach their care. So, you know, Dr. Bonilla as a medical oncologist is going to have one perspective. And then um, me as a pharmacist or medication expert, I'm going to have totally, totally different lens in which I'm viewing the patient, um, their therapy, their labs, and then the nursing perspective. And so it's almost like you're getting overlapping views, but because we all come together, we're able to fill in the gaps. And I think that is um, one of the biggest pluses. And then as, you know, the, the needs or the orders for the patients move through the system, again, you have those various layers of safety checks. Um, and I think that's also a benefit with us having pharmacy, um, the clinic, and the infusion center all in one place. We are able to communicate in real time and get um, responses in real time in order to delay, prevent delays in treatment. Wonderful. And Dr. Bonilla, did you have anything to add on that? Uh, no, I think that uh, Tammy really uh, put it together very nicely. Um, I think multidisciplinary approaches are always the best way to do this because we want to second pair of eyes. There are expert in specific parts of the patient's journey uh, to really kind of problem solve those things. And I think particularly when we're talking about, you know, things like colorectal cancer and, and use of targeted drugs and all of that is always essential to have that, you know, pretty comprehensive approach because patients may come from any single angle, either from the perspective of, you know, how the drug works to the side effects, to the uh, management of things that we need to do in terms of adjustments and also education and at the same time kind of following outcomes as we move forward. So um, it's uh, it's always a, 
a good thing to have that team, which uh, not all practices have. I mean, both are pretty busy and we have privilege to have an oncologist that is actually taking care of us on a daily basis, but it's good to have an extra pair of eyes and a team that can help us to really accomplish those things. Absolutely. And then it is colorectal cancer awareness month, which I know you just mentioned colorectal cancer. Um, so I know that that is a specialty there, um, but what are some of the current updates in colon cancer that our audience should know about? Um, well, I mean, of course, there's uh, uh, always an evolving field. Um, I think the, the recent, recently over the last you know, year or so, we have seen some updates on clinical trials that have come up. Uh, including also uh, recommendations in terms of screening for colorectal cancer um, brought up by, you know, a number of, you know, prominent folks, for example, in Hollywood and beyond that, uh, unfortunately, being young and affected by, by colorectal cancer now have uh, really brought it to the forefront on how we can do screening. And in the age of COVID, even more important, as we have the shadow curve of folks not coming to our practices to get that screening done in time. So uh, that's one thing that they just, just big picture for screening, I think is one of the major changes that happened recently. Uh, the other things that are happening are in the uh, treatment of patients uh, in the adjuvant setting. We, we now have uh, studies coming up uh, on fecal and tumor DNA to really assess which patients may benefit from longer, shorter period of time of treatment. Uh, we have understanding of the um, like strategies to use in patients who are elderly, um, and uh, and also we have understanding of the use of immunotherapy uh, in in targeted drugs in colorectal cancers. So the use, for example, of um, um, uh, you know HER2 targeting drugs uh, is becoming uh, now coming to the forefront of clinical trials and with interesting uh, uh, results, and also how uh, the use of immunotherapy, for example, when we test the right biomarkers such as MSI, we're seeing uh, the uh, you know remarkable results in in survival for patients who are the right patients at the right time for this agent. So um, I think that the space is continues to evolve, and I'm excited to be part of that uh, and to help our patients on we on the go. Uh, and that's why collaboration is essential because we need everyone to be aware of those changes and collaborate together so we can get patients more to clinical trials and also to screen patients earlier so we don't have to put the patients on clinical trials. Yeah. Get them on treatment uh, or, or, or get them to uh, surgery before the cancer really becomes problematic. And I want to talk to you about screening um, in just a minute, but really quickly first on the drug side, um, I know we've been seeing a lot on DPD deficiency testing, and I know it's become um, part of some of the European guidelines and it hasn't necessarily made it here yet, but what are your thoughts on the testing and how is your center currently handling this or, or are they, I guess? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, the, I think the United States is such a different environment because we are, uh, even though we have central agencies, you know, is still a lot of, uh, you know, discussion uh, in academic and non-academic settings. So, as you well mentioned, the European aid agency agencies in 2020, actually, uh, it uh, actually made recommendations that DPD testing was supposed to be happening for every single patient uh, who were going to be exposed to fluoropyrimidines. Um, so, uh, for you know those not familiar with the topic, I mean the uh, you know DPD is stands for that dihydropyrimidine dehydrogenase, or, uh, which is an enzyme that we have uh, in our bodies that help us to metabolize uh, 
fluoropyrimidine, so you know, five fluorouracil, capsidamine, tegaphor, flycytosine, all those are metabolized by this enzyme. And uh, the idea here is that there's a number of patients that lack that enzyme either completely or partially uh, just based on genomics and how we're built. And that leads to additional side effects when that happens. Um, so if you have a full, fully functioning enzyme that you, you can get standard dosing of the drugs, but the idea here is to be proactive and kind of like say, okay, this patient has a partial deficiency of a full deficiency, then we should not first or use this drug at all or do a very much, you know, dose-adjusted approach from the beginning, not a reactive approach. Um, as you know, the United States were experts in um, sometimes being, you know, reactive to things. And I think this is one example. Uh, I don't think that DPD testing has been even discussed uh, in uh, the community setting, which is, you know, 85% of the patients in the United States. And even in academic settings where I have talked to a bunch of different folks, only a few, you know, DPD talks, I may say, are the ones looking into it. Uh, but if you probably look at the vast majority of oncologists in the United States, very few are performing this testing, which, you know, it tells us that maybe we should just ask, uh, first of all, if our populations of patients are the similar uh, to the ones in that prompted the European changes, right? So that's one thing that extrapolation of, of our populations makes sense. Uh, and also make, you know, cost-benefit analysis. And sometimes it comes down to, you know, payers or, you know, putting a quality metric and say, if you test, maybe you get a, a positive mark on your quality metrics for colorectal cancer. Uh, so that'll be kind of like my take on it, but still a long way to go, I believe. Yes, yes, thank you. And thank you for the explanation. That was a great um, overview of, of what it is too. Um, so back to the screening, um, I know you just mentioned that, you know, we're really looking at younger patients. I don't know if anyone, we're coming off of the Super Bowl and I just saw the meme going around um, about if you are excited about the Super Bowl halftime show, it's time to get your colorectal cancer screening. Um, but can you talk more about current screening guidelines and um, also on the side of disparities? Are there any disparities found in the screening? I am pretty sure that there are. And if so, um, what would you say they are and how could we help remedy? Yes, uh, I think you're right on, on track on this. Um, so, and you know, screening for cancer is not something that happens you know, as common as we wish, wish to be, uh, and that has been exacerbated by COVID, there's always going to be, you know, a challenge in that, but there's uh, the disparities that you mentioned have really amplified uh, recently. So we know that, you know, um, despite the fact that, uh, you know, we have a really large population of, you know, uh, black uh, population, we have a large Hispanic or Latinx population, most of them um, are not going to get their colonoscopies or screening on time. And, uh, and that's something that, you know, it's cultural, it's access to care, it's, uh, you know, um, outreach to those folks. Uh, I'm trying from the, you know, as I, uh, part of the Hispanic population myself, I try to, um, you know, push that further. I work with certain campaigns. Uh, CTCA had a national campaign called No Spares Campaign. Uh, and I'm also working on uh, other groups, uh, particularly focused on the black population that is trying to accomplish some of those things to improve access uh, to options, clinical trials and beyond. But the disparities are there and, uh, and they're just making things worse because you know patients come later and, and things that could be easily solved by getting you know, that polyp that is small 
um, and, and you know, remove that eventually it's gonna become cancerous. Now we have to deal with a cancer that has already spread. So if we capture these things right on time, we can prevent a lot of the patients having cancer in advanced settings. So it's one of those things that actually makes a difference uh, in the life of patients and people are just giving it for granted because of you know discomfort or or myths around, you know, oh, I'm gonna get, you know, I need to get this prep and it's gonna be difficult. There's different uh, different things that we can do now for screening. So uh, the recommendations are, uh, you know, issued by multiple uh, agencies, but the largest one is the USPSTF, which is the United States Preventative Task Force in the US uh, that sets up basically all the evidence and tells us what are the things that we should do or not based on, you know, benefits, harms, et cetera. Uh, so it's recently been adjusted to um, account for, for folks who are 45 years of age and older that they should be recommended for uh, colorectal cancer screening. Um, so, uh, you know, we may think well, 45 is quite young. I mean, yeah, he's young, but a lot of folks are getting cancer at the young age. And if we can prevent, you know, by taking away that little polyp that is going to become cancer in the future is the same as, you know, you have a mole in your skin and it looks, you know, that's natural looking and maybe it's going to grow become a, a skin cancer then get rid of it, it's the same, but this is in the colon, right? So uh, it's something that is as simple as that, that folks don't really grasp it because they don't see it. So sometimes when we don't see, we don't care. Like, so uh, that's something that that certainly can be done. And uh, just to like, you know, I, I know I talked a lot already, but um, uh, one thing that is important is that there's a lot of things we can do in terms of non-invasive testing. So we can do, you know, fecal testing. Basically, we send a sample, and then they check for the DNA of the of this uh, of the sample and see if there's any changes that prompt maybe doing a colonoscopy earlier. Uh, there is CT colonography, which is basically a CAT scan uh, that checks for that. So you need the prep. I mean, so it, it I mean, it, it it has a lot of opportunities now that we can do uh, that um, may may be different and still be able to find the cancer on time. Okay. No, that's. that's a great point. There are options. Um, I think we don't necessarily think about there being options other than the colonoscopy. But I also like your analogy to the skin cancer. And I think, it, I mean, it's an easy thing to go to the dermatologist and get a spot burned off. So you really should be thinking about this the same way. Um, is there anything else that either of you would like to add before we move on to a couple of final questions about either um, colon cancer or even your center, the pharmacy team, anything in general? Um, I think from my perspective is, you know, get your colonoscopy, get your, get your screening. That's the key challenge uh, that we have. And that's the key message. If there's anything you take from today's conversation, that will be thing. If you have a family member, you have a loved one that you really care about, then, you know, if they're 45 years old uh, or older, then tell them, get your colonoscopy. Don't, and don't give up. It's like, yeah, I'll get it done. It's like, okay, let me help you set the schedule. Let me set the appointment for you because it's not easy. Right? That's the other thing. I, I was helping my mom the other day and it took me a while, but I was able to get her screened. So <laughs> I empathize with that. Yes, and just drive, drive them there and pick, the, pick them up. Emmy, <laughs> mm -hmm. mm -hmm. did you have anything else to add? On, on a, just a little bit um, of a different note, just from the multidisciplinary team approach, um, not only from the perspective of the patient, but as practitioners, it's really an opportunity to sharpen ourselves. Um, 
you know, for instance, as a pharmacist, I'm not as patient facing as our care managers. And so to be able to have that relationship with them um, to gain more insight uh, on what our patients are experiencing um, when they're going through treatment only makes me a better pharmacist for um, other patients. And I think likewise with our medical oncologists, being able to establish that relationship, having the rapport, having the trust, um, it greatly benefits our patients, but also makes us better practitioners. And so um, I'm just really a fan of how our clinics are set up, how we're able to integrate, um, and how that translates to better care for our patients. I love that. And I love that you are saying we can, we can all learn from each other, learn something from another person. So I think that's fantastic. And really quickly, Tammy, on that note, do you have any tips for other, um, maybe like pharmacists who are trying to develop relationships with their providers um, or even, you know, their nursing care managers in the clinic just for, for forging through and, and building those relationships? Yeah, um, definitely. So I think sometimes pharmacy, we get a bad rep, you know, we're only coming to tell the provider what they did wrong or the error, you know, that we found. But I think um, approaching every patient case or situation with curiosity, um, because our perspective is limited and typically we're looking retrospectively. So if we're reviewing a chart, uh, we don't know what's changed, you know, in that moment since we've been reading. And so always approaching, whether it's a, a nurse or a provider with curiosity, can you, you know, can you give me insight into your thought process with this, you know, or can you share the literature, you know, that is, um, that is the motivation behind this line of treatment? Because even though we have the drug knowledge, you know, there's, there's a big perspective. There's a whole other part of the patient that we we're not experts in. And I think approaching it with curiosity instead of, you know, this is what the guidelines say, or this is what we should be doing has really helped um, in my personal relationships to kind of break down that wall and, um, and establish those relationships and, and the mutual trust um, between me and um, the providers that I serve. It's great. It's a great tip. Thank you for sharing that. And then we call this the PQI podcast to bring awareness to ENCODA's positive quality intervention resource. Um, so I don't know who, who wants to take this one, but what value do you think that this resource brings to the team? Especially being an, in oncology, you kind of get stuck in your niche. <laughs> and it's really interesting to see what my colleagues and other practitioners are doing in the field. Um, because um, in our setting, we, we're not focusing on just one type of solid tumor or on blood malignancies. We're kind of seeing it all. And so we really don't get to delve in. And so a really um, quick way to get information. Um, so it's definitely found it very helpful. Um, and then to be able to share that with the team in a very informal way. Wonderful. Thank you. And then unless Dr. Bonilla has anything else to add, I have one final fun question for both of you. Um, so we're, we're mixing it up this season on the podcast, but what would you say is the proudest um, moment in your life so far? You can either say personally or professionally. And we'll start with Tammy. 
I guess I have to go with the first one that came to mind. Um, mine is more professional. So I graduated from Wingate University School of Pharmacy in Wingate, North Carolina. It's located about 45 minutes outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. And I was really involved in um, SNAPA, the Student National Pharmaceutical Association. Um, and we were a relatively new chapter. And as a P1, I hit the ground running. And by my P3 year, I had been to a couple regional conferences and our national conference that they hold every year. And I was just so gung-ho on um, bringing the organization to Charlotte, really showing them what the WUSOP chapter had to offer, what we had been doing. And um, it was a process. We had put in some bids and it got denied. But once we finally got it um, and we held the conference, it was one of the, at that time, one of the most attended uh, region one and two conferences. And it was just a mm -hmm. big hit. And so to kind of be the chair of that and to kind of, you know, go through a couple of years of trying to fight, trying to prove and for it to really just be a success is just something that I always think about. It's an achievement that I couldn't do on my own. It literally took our entire chapter, our advisors, but I'll never forget how much fun we had. That's awesome. That's a, that's a great thing to be proud of, and especially as a student. Um, it, it takes a lot just to get through pharmacy school, but to do that on top of it is awesome. Yes, thank you. And then Dr. Bonilla. I mean, that, I mean, it's, uh, it's uh, very interesting because, you know, I don't think uh, uh, anyone has really asked me that question before. So I, I'm struggling because there's so many, you know, happy memories, things and bad that you suffer and really get it. Um, that uh, it, 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 that's what makes them always, you know, that you're so proud of it because you went through a lot of, you know, uh, you know, hard work to get it done. Um, um, so this is uh, kind of a like personal dash professional one. So I, uh, as I was in uh, academics, I always thought that, you know, like I always wanted to do something outside of my comfort zone. And I decided to jump and I, um, I found a few partners and I co-founded a company um, uh, in the biotech side. Uh, it's called Massive Bio, so my, that's my only disclosure here. But um, it, it was a proud moment for me because we are so risk averse and we're always, you know, thinking, you know, let's just go for the safe thing and, yes. and and do something that you know just come nine to five and then everyone likes you and then praise you and then you just go through life and that's it uh, I wanted to do something that really made a difference using technology and go outside of my area of expertise I mean kind of delving into you know artificial intelligence and understanding how you know big you know digital companies work uh, and actually being able to, you know, grasp that and, and try to integrate it to my clinical practice into a, a meaningful product, it was something that really made me proud. And I mean, I keep it, I mean, I don't think it's a final thing, but uh, it, it was it was a, a, um, a something good. And what I really loved the fact was that I had the strong support of, you know, my family, my colleagues and CTCA, they were extremely helpful and supportive on my, you know, outside of the box endeavors. Um, sometimes something you don't see, in other settings. So um, uh, I, that's one of the, you know, one of the highlights of my life, of course. Uh, the other one is, you know, my daughter that I love to death, Natalia, but um, that's that that's an, uh, a proud moment on my own. But, you know, I think every single parent has the same feeling. So I think we're all biased. 
Yes, we. I think we definitely are. How old is she? Uh, she's two years and a half. So. Okay. Okay. I have a two-year-old girl and a ten-year-old boy, but the the girl she's a lot. So, but they're they're special for sure. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. um, but that's fantastic. Thank you. I think that out of the box is certainly something that is hard for everyone. Um, I have a a poster you can't see. We don't have our cameras turned on, but hanging behind my head that says "Be brave." Um, that I, I want my kids to be able to see every day. So definitely something to be proud of for you. But thank you both so much for joining us today. You have been fantastic and I really appreciate your time and everything that you had to share with our audience. Thank, thank you so you much. for having us. This episode is brought to you by Cardinal Health Vital Source GPO. Our site of care dispensing solutions provide the end-to-end -end expert support you need to launch and maintain a successful dispensing program. From initial evaluation to design and implementation to ongoing operations and patient monitoring. Vital Source GPO provides tools, resources, and expertise to help you deliver exceptional patient care, gain additional revenue, and protect reimbursements. To connect with a Cardinal Health team member to learn more, go to cardinalhealth.com dispensing. Again, that's cardinalhealth.com slash dispensing. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Bonilla and Tammy. Please remember to get your colorectal cancer screening if due and encourage patients, friends, and family to do the same. To download this podcast, you can search the PQI podcast on Spotify and Apple and remember to follow along. You can listen on our website at encoda.org. That's encoda.org. You can also follow us on Instagram at the PQI podcast. We would like to thank Encoda for making this podcast possible, and we hope you join us next week for another edition of the PQI podcast. Thanks, everybody.